Okay. So today we go ahead and we uh, we continue our fifth principle over here. The name of the principle is uh, worshiping Hashem exclusively. That's the uh, the fifth uh, uh, principle uh, to recognize, as we were talking about, that only Hashem uh, is worthy of our worship, and uh, not even to address the intermediaries in the sense that or to uh, to assign any sort of independent decision-making uh, or independence to any of those uh, intermediaries. All of that will be a problem and will be a violation of this, uh, this fifth, fifth principle. So based on that, when we left off last week, so we were wondering about the song, I think uh, Ellen had brought it up, the song Shalom Aleichem, uh, where in the third paragraph we say, Baruchuni L'Shalom. I hope everybody thought about this, that this week when they were singing Shalom Aleichem. The Baruchuni L'Shalom, the simple translation of that is that we are asking the angels to go ahead and bless us. And based on this uh, principle, angels don't have the autonomy to go ahead and decide to bless us or not, that we should address them for, uh, for blessing. They are pawns. Uh, in uh, in Hashem's world, uh, although they may have some, there may be some memshala, there may be some dominion which is assigned to them, but nonetheless, it's not a, a autonomy and it's not bechira uh, in a sense. It's not free choice to go ahead and decide. You know what? I like the cones this week, and therefore I'm going to bless them. But the Myers, actually, the Myers this week, since they helped out and they uh, they plowed the whole street, so the whole block, so they're also going to get uh, you know some extra bracha this week. But uh, some of the other people, it looks like uh, Arnie left a big mess on that mountain of snow behind him. So being that he, he left all the snow there, so, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, may, maybe is not going to. So we said that, in fact, there are some authorities who actually um, uh, object to that paragraph. And they change around the wording. They don't say it all together because it's objectionable uh, in the sense that it violates this, uh, this, this, uh, this fifth principle. And we mention other places, like in, the, like in Slichos was one of them, where also we end up, uh, there's uh, these questionable paragraphs, whether or not uh, we are addressing uh, angels. Can I ask a question? So the question is, the question which Rabbi, we Rabbi Mel has a question. Oh, yes, Mel, sorry. If you can't ask angels for a blessing, how can the Kohanim bless you? Um, so the Kohanim aren't actually uh, giving the, the blessing, they are the conduit for the blessing. Could the angels be a conduit for the blessing? Indeed, indeed. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the the problem is is that the, the they could be, but the language of Barchuni L'Shalom certainly sounds like the simple translation would be that the angels are giving the uh, the blessing. But you're right; that's going to be our answer. You're about a minute ahead of me, so it must be that my internet is slow and your internet connection is faster, and therefore you're as far as I'm concerned, you're already in the future. I don't know exactly how that would uh, would work scientifically, but I'm just going to go with that because it makes sense in my head for the moment. So, because um, for all you know, I may be recording, uh, just playing for you guys. <laughs> I may be outside playing in our snow fort or our snow igloos, and you guys are, uh, you know, there inside. So, um, so those of us who do say Barchuni L'Shalom, uh, uh, it may have been that, that we never even thought about it before, but now that we are aware of it, so what would be the justification of saying Baruchuni L'Shalom in a way which does not uh, violate this fifth principle? So the truth is, like we talk about in the, in Daf, 
that sometimes in order for a shot to make sense, in order for an answer to make sense, so you have to use different size. You froze. And we need this enormous, uh, you know, uh, hammer, which is going to go ahead and push uh, push up shot into place. Oops. Rabbi, you're frozen. He's out playing in the snow. Barefoot? As long as he holds his hand up, an ace roll will win. There we go. How much? Where, where, where did you lose me there? Uh, the the Daf Yomi reference to how you're going to bang something into place. Okay, I hope it's, uh, yeah. Okay, I, I don't know what happened. I hope the recording is consistent and we don't need to. Um, okay, so different size sledgehammers necessary to go ahead and make a shot uh, correct. Anywhere from a one to a, to a 10, 10 being the largest size sledgehammer. So the explanation that we're going to have to give over here to fit it into the words is going to be some mid-range sized sledgehammer. So we say the explanation which is given is that uh, is based on the Gemara and Shabbos, Kufya Tess on the base. So not too long ago in our Daf Yomi uh, uh, history, although not so recently, but there is the famous Gemara which talks about when a person returns home from shul on Friday night, on Shabbos night, so there are two angels which accompany a person. And the Gemara says, the Gemara relates that in the event that a person returns home and everything in the house is ready for Shabbos, the table is set, everybody is just sitting there with their hands folded in their lap, waiting patiently and talking nicely to, uh, to one another in that idyllic uh, world. So when that happens, <laughs> yes, it happens in the Myers home, uh, on time. <laughs> So when, when yes. that happens, so the good, the, the good angel says to the bad angel, the good angel declares that this should be what happens next week. And the bad angel is forced to go ahead and say, Amen. Then in the event that the house is not uh, ready, it's not in a state of, uh, of order. There's chaos, which is going on. There's mooks everywhere. The table isn't set. The food is uh, still in the process of being warmed up or finishing uh, the last uh, steps of, of cooking. So then the bad malach, as it were, says it should be like this next week. And the good angel is forced to say amen. Is forced to say uh, amen to that as well. So what we're really asking the angels to do is not that the angels should uh, have the, uh, the ability to go ahead and grant us blessing, that it should be perceived in a sense as though the house is ready and everything is, is good, and therefore they should do what they are compelled to do, which is to go ahead and provide us with the blessing that, which is the task that they are assigned by God, Rather than uh, th rather than by us, and that's uh, that's how we're going to go ahead and slam uh, a an explanation into the words Barchuni l'shalom, not their independent uh, decision to give us a bracha, but that they 
what they are forced to do, uh, to give us a bracha because we're ready, that's what we're asking for. And what we'll say is, whatever other prayers which sound like we're asking the angels to go ahead and bless us, we're going to interpret as not that they have the ability to decide to bless us or not, but we're asking them to do what they are compelled to do, which is whatever the circumstances, they should go ahead and they should give us uh, they should give us prayer. Isn't this similar to asking a a gadol for a bracha for for something specific, um, you know, as opposed a, to a general bracha? Right. So uh, another another context in which you find. Uh, a similar type of question and then a similar type of resolution is going to a Beis HaKvaros, going to a cemetery, whether it's to visit a tzaddik or going to a cemetery to visit, uh, you know, a relative who passed away. And also, the, if you if you look in the postgame, so they warn very strongly that you one should not think that one is asking the deceased to go ahead and provide blessing to the living because the deceased don't have that uh, independence and that autonomy to go ahead and distribute brachas. That's not within their domain. That's not within their job description to do so. And therefore they, uh, they say that, uh, you know, the most that they could do is like we say at a Leviah to be a Melitz Yosher. We ask them to advocate on our behalf, but not that they have the power to go ahead and, and bless us. And that's something which you see in Sfarm, which uh, where, where that uh, where that comes up, that the postgame will very often emphasize that uh, that point. And that is, you're, you're, you're correct, Sachi, that that's one of those issues where misnagdim uh, and chasidim sort of part ways, and they see things a little bit differently. The misnagdim will typically accuse the chasidim of saying that the Rebbe has the ability to bless, that he has the power to go ahead and uh, in direct blessing uh, in the direction where he chooses, whereas others are going to say, whereas the, uh, the Hasidim aren't, uh, aren't really, they'll see it more uh, like the issue that, uh, that Mel brought up with Kohanim, that they are the conduit for the blessing rather than the source of the blessing itself. Yes, Arnie. Um, uh, to the Hasidim point of view, calling us misnagim is derogatory and negative. So, and, and I'm sure we all know the translation so maybe we should just call ourselves Ashkenazim or something else. Because Misnagim, they take it as those against Hasidim, where we just might have a different agenda, mostly parallel, some fine points different. But um, I guess I'm just expressing, I don't like Misnagim. Because uh, when they refer to us that way, they're not being positive. So why... I'm, I'm not sure if, if, if it's if they, they refer to, to us that way or we refer to ourselves that way. They refer to <laughs> us this way. I've hung around with them plenty. They consider me one of them, and I like being considered amongst every Jewish group. It's not an issue. But um, when they, they uh, I was in a community that was attempting to be split by such misnagim, and they, they were, uh, you know, being called that for their negative behavior. Okay. I mean, I can't speak the whole to story question. another time. I don't want to, to take off our 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 yeah. our goal here. Sorry. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so that so that is the way that uh, that uh, the, these types of prayers would go ahead and be answered, and because uh, you have to take out this uh, this nice size sledgehammer to go ahead and uh, and explain it. Okay. Now, at this point, since we brought up the uh, the topic, and this is really the uh, the thrust of this uh, this principle, it has to do with uh, with prayer. So uh, it's worthwhile for us to go ahead and, uh, and spend a little bit of time, at least, uh, exploring some of the basic approaches and theories 
regarding the concept of prayer. And uh, uh, the, uh, there's a number of, um, uh, of difficulties when you begin to think about prayer from a philosophical and a theological uh, perspective. So it raises a number of, uh, of interesting things. Because uh, when we stand in davening and we speak to Hashem, so it's not a therapy moment in the sense that we're just trying to get our troubles off of our chest. We're trying to get them from outside of, uh, you know, uh, of, of our thought process and just get them out in the, in the open. Uh, the uh, intent of prayer is ultimately that our requests will be answered and that Hashem, whatever, whatever we want, whatever the, uh, the specific request is, we're expecting or we're hoping that Kosh Baruch Hu is going to, to answer, uh, is going to answer us. And that means that we're hoping Again, from a superficial perspective of prayer, what we're hoping for is that we could change Hashem's mind. That up until now, Hashem has decided that we're going to be in a particular circumstance. We don't like that circumstance that we find ourselves in, and therefore we ask Hashem to go ahead and change that circumstance. I imagine a prayer which has gone uh, past a, a number of people's lips over the last few months is, God have this uh, virus uh, go away, something along, along those lines. So we've, uh, we've wished and prayed that, uh, that the virus should uh, go away. So what we're, effective, what we're essentially doing is we're saying to God, listen, you may have made a divine decision with your uh, omniscience that the world, uh, that there should be a virus, which is a pandemic, which is, uh, which is all over the globe right now. But what we would like is that you should put it to an end. So we're asking God... Again, from our perspective, we're asking God to go ahead and change his mind. But since God and his will are one and the same, going back to the unity principle, that we don't separate God and his will, like we, we are humans, and then we have particular thoughts. And the thoughts that, uh, that uh, any individual has isn't shared by others. So it's something which is unique to that individual. When it comes to God, there's no such <clears throat> distinction between God and his own God and his will. So if we're trying to get God to change his mind and to <clears throat> uh, get uh, uh, do away with the, the pandemic, do away with the virus, so we're, what we're really trying to do effectively is we're trying to change God. But God is unchanging. So if God is unchanging and God and his will are one and the same, so what exactly are we trying to accomplish with, uh, with, uh, with prayer? It seems to be a futile attempt to go ahead and change the unchangeable. That's question number one. A second issue that we have to uh, consider is that why is there a need for prayer in the first place anyways? If God actually is omniscient, which we take as a given that God is omniscient, so he knows perfectly well what our needs are. So if God already knows what our needs are, so why do we need to go ahead and express them and lay them out before him and verbalize them before, before God? He should be perfectly aware of what our needs are and what we want uh, by simple fact that he created the circumstance which generates those needs. And therefore, he should be fully aware of our circumstances and what it is that we want. So why can't we just rely on the fact that he knows what we want? Why do we have to go ahead and express them in the form of prayer? Another uh, related question, another uh, difficult philosophical question, it relates to What's going on uh, uh, that uh, with regards to Rosh Hashanah? Because on Rosh Hashanah, we know that when come Yamim Naraim time, 
we talk about how on, uh, on Rosh Hashanah we stand before God in judgment. And the judgment, even if it extends all the way to Yom Kippur, is uh, a decision how, the, how we're going to be judged and how the events of the coming year are going to unfold. We'll have good parnasa. We won't have good parnasa. We'll have good health. We won't have good health. We'll have, uh, you know, Shalom Yisrael. There won't be Shalom Yisrael. All these decisions are made by HaKadosh Baruch Hu for each individual and for all of Klal Yisrael and Rosh Hashanah. So if we believe, as we do, that everything is already decided on Rosh Hashanah, so then what am I praying for on Chashrat? What do I hope to accomplish on the 20th of Shvat with my prayer when everything for the entire year was already determined already in Tishrei, months and months ago, everything was already decided, and how are we going to change that judgment at that point? We spend a lot of time discussing uh, conceptually that there is the signing of the verdict, and then there is the sealing of the verdict. And seemingly once the verdict, once the decision is sealed as far as where we're going to be, so that's not something which could change. So why go through the exercise of davening three times a day in order to change something which seemingly is unchanging? Okay, so those are the three or four questions that we have uh, regarding the nature and uh, the, the concept of prayer, the existence of prayer why it is effective in any way. So there's one approach, which is the Kabbalistic approach. Um, uh, and that relates to, their approach to prayer uh, relates to, is really an extension of their general perspective on the way that God and man interact. So as we talked about in, a, in the previous principle, that uh, God is the infinite light. He is pure light. We use that as a, as a marshal. And as God, God's light uh, emanates from God, makes its way through all of those various universes and all the various stages from the purely spiritual to the physical, so that light, as it enters into our world, it influences the world as well. And as we mentioned, God has given control over those lights, and God has given control over the dimmer switch to mankind. So depending on our behavior, we could dim, we could have less light or we could have more light. If we do more mitzvahs, we turn the dial on the dimmer switch to make it brighter. When we do not do what we're supposed to, we don't learn Torah, we don't do mitzvahs. So then we turn the switch the other way in order to decrease the amount of light which is, which is coming in. On top of which, as we talked about, there are the different types of filters which we could put over that light. So sometimes you can put the filter of mercy and compassion. Sometimes it's going to be one of uh, uh, which uh, seems, which uh, strikes us, which uh, uh, gives us the impression of God getting angry and punishment. And prayer is seen as one of the ways, one of the powerful ways by which we have control over the dimmer switch. So through prayer, so uh, we're not asking, we're not seeking to change God or to change his ratzon, what we're trying to do is we are trying on our end of things to adjust the dimmer switch to allow the type of light which will enter into this world and which will be perceived in this world, one which is going to be favorable towards our good health, our parnasa, our whatever it happens to be that we are, uh, we are, davening, uh, we are davening for. That is the way the Mekubalim see uh, on the, the most fundamental level, that's the way they see the nature of prayer. Now there's another approach, 
And this is one which is uh, uh, seen or is expressed by, number one, Rabbi Yudah Levi, the author of the Kuzari. This is his approach to, uh, to prayer, which also has nothing to do with changing God, but uh, it, it has to do with how prayer is going to change us. We become changed as a result of prayer rather than uh, attempting to go ahead and change God. So as I said, this is the approach of the Kuzari, and this is also the approach of Shamshar Rafal Hirsch in uh, his many writings about the philosophy. So he also sees it as a personal exercise where one transcends the mundane and establishes a strong connection with HaKadosh Baruch, with Hashem. And they see it in a sense as prayer, as sustenance for... The, 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 the Kuzari expresses this clearly, that they see it as sustenance for the neshama. Just like uh, we eat three times a day in order to put nutrients into the body, vitamins and minerals, and nutrients into the body so that the body will be healthy and will be capable of functioning. So prayer, which we also do three times a day in the morning, in the afternoon, and at night, is also designed to give sustenance, spiritual sustenance to the neshama, in order that it should be able to, uh, to, uh, to function. Rav Hirsch says, he, he takes note in his, uh, uh, his uh, style of exploring words in Shirashim and the, the root letters. So he sees the word tefillah to be related uh, to the word, to the Shoresh Palel, Pe Lamed Lamed. And he says that is a, that the, the, uh, um, it's uh, the, it's not conjunction, the, um, the form of the word, it escapes me now, but the form of the word is tefillah or lehit palel is going to be uh, reflexive, meaning that it's a kind of self-judgment. That's what prayer is. It's a time to go ahead and reflect on our lives. And as we said, we do it at the beginning, the middle of the day, and we go through the process to make sure that to uh, sort of um, uh, 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 check in on ourselves and to make sure that we are behaving in a way which is consistent with God's will, rather than uh, over the course of the distraction of the uh, distractions of the day, uh, veering off of that path of 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 alignment with God, of connection with God, and that's the purpose of prayer. It's sort of a a reset or it's a recalibration of our thinking process to make sure that we remain in line with uh, with Hashem. So those are two general approaches that, uh, that, uh, that we have. Either we're trying to adjust the light, but not God himself, the filters and the amount of light which is coming through, that's the Kabbalistic approach. And the approach of, uh, we could call it the rational approach perhaps, of Rav Shamshon Rafal Hirsch and the Kuzari is that we're trying to change ourselves. But the problem is, with this is, is it doesn't really explain um, uh, 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 what we hope to gain, why uh, the, it, it's one thing to meditate. Mindfulness is, is a powerful thing. And meditating uh, in a mindful manner is a very good thing. But why does it seem, why, why do we need to go ahead and include God in that process? If it's merely a meditation where we are thinking about ourselves and our thought process and our motivation and our behavior. So it really doesn't have much to do with, uh, with God. So we have to add a, uh, a variation of that, and that is from the Bali Musar. That is from the ethical approach, the way they understand prayer. And they say that, uh, they also note 
that uh, tefillah is not an effort to change God or to change his will, because that's an impossible endeavor. But rather, what we're hoping to do is we are trying to affect, uh, similar to Rebut Alevi, similar to Kuzari, we're trying to affect a change in ourself. And by davening for refuah, by davening for good health, by davening for parnasa, by davening for das, one of the things which we were bringing to our attention, we're bringing to the forefront of our attention, our consciousness, is the fact that God is the source of blessing for all of these things. So if we want any of those things, so the way we're going to get that is via God. And the more conscious we are of the fact that God is the source of that, in a sense, the more uh, deserving we become of those things. So if I start my Shemon Esrei at a level of 47, let's say, and over the course of Shemon Esrei, I, I meditate and I'm mindful and I think a, a lot about the fact that the brachas which I want come from God. So by the time I finish Shemon Esrei, I'm now at level 49. So if I change myself, I transform myself from a 47th level Jew to a 49th level Jew, so then that puts me on a higher spiritual plane. And now it may be true that as a 47th level Jew, I was not deserving of the million dollars, the good health or whatever it happens to be. Now that I've elevated myself and I'm now at level 49 or level 50 or something, at that level of spirituality, I may be deserving of more things. I may be deserving of the thing which, I, which I'm after. So again, it's not an exercise in trying to change God. What I'm trying to do is to change myself and make myself more worthy. And now that by the time prayer is over, I am at a higher spiritual level, I could then become deserving of more of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's bracha. So in simple terms, we're not trying to change God. We are trying to change ourselves and make ourselves more worthy of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's bracha through the, uh, the exercise of prayer. Yes, Mel. When you pray for somebody else's health, how does that help that somebody else if you're only changing yourself? Uh, indeed. So this this part of the Bali Musser's approach uh, would not explain how exactly that works. That would be more in line with the Kabbalistic approach that by my prayer for that person, I am attempting to bring more light, uh, compassionate light into this world I'm trying to put the filter of compassion and mercy uh, over God's light so that the, more of that type of light enters into the world and then that will trickle down and eventually reach the person who is ill and they should be a beneficiary of that additional light. So that would work uh, according to that, uh, to that approach. Now, um, so th this tells us a little bit about the, uh, the background of, of prayer, somewhat about the, uh, the background of prayer. But what we haven't uh, addressed and what we haven't really answered is how exactly um, right. So what we haven't answered is is how we're going to be able to reconcile um, the the question of what's going to be the efficacy of prayer on the twentieth of Shvat if everything has already been determined on Rosh Hashanah. So we, we discuss why on a daily basis or on a, uh, a, a, any particular tefillah, which we say over the course of the day, uh, in, in, in that very localized context, how that works. 
the Kabbalistic approach, the rational approach, what the Bali Musa add to that. But now as we look at it from, let's say, on a yearly perspective, so how exactly is prayer going to be effective when everything has already been decided on Rosh Hashanah? If everything's already decided on Rosh Hashanah, then there's nothing which can change. That's what it seem to be by definition. Nothing should really be able to change if everything is, is in place. So for this, I'd like to share with you two different approaches about uh, two different uh, philosophical approaches uh, to address this, uh, this, this idea. And they are, number one is, is that uh, what happens on Rosh Hashanah is, let's just use uh, uh, money as, uh, as our example. So let's say on Rosh Hashanah, it was decided that I'm going to earn $60,000 in Tav Shin Pe'alf. That was a decision on, on Rosh Hashanah. So the first approach says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't, doesn't actually deposit $60,000 into my account. That's not what happens. That's not what the determination is. What that means is it's sort of like a, a grant. So money is set aside for a particular purpose. $60,000 is set aside in Shomayim for me. But as often happens with grants, if you don't use up the grant money, so then what happens is it goes back into the pot at the end of the, uh, the term of the grant. So it just goes back into the pot and it's, uh, it, it can be used uh, somewhere else. So the judgment on Rosh Hashanah, this first approach says that the judgment on Rosh Hashanah is not a deposit into my account. It's a, an allotment or a designation of funds which are available for me. But I still need to go ahead and work throughout the year. I still need to go ahead and dive in throughout the year to be able to gain access to those funds. Because it's possible that those $60,000 could be set aside for my use, but ultimately, I may not ultimately deserve to get access. I may not deserve uh, the actual deposit into my uh, funds. If I commit various transgressions, I violate God's will in different way. God will say, well, listen, you went ahead and you double parked. So we're taking $75 out of that, uh, that $60,000. And you went ahead and you, uh, you know, you, uh, you blew through a red light and you got uh, caught by a cop while you were on your cell phone at the same time. So that's going to be, you know, $150 ticket and then $225, you know, to pay for traffic school. You know, they tell me, not they've ever had the experience. But whatever the, whatever the, uh, the penalty is going to be, so all of that stuff is going to add up and all of that is going to come out of my $60,000. So the potential for $60,000 is there, but it's not automatic because I still have to go ahead and take it throughout the year. And the way I take it throughout the year is by using the power of prayer and tapping into the potential which is there for me. And that's how, uh, that's, uh, that's going to be the balance between judgment on Rosh Hashanah, what my din is, what my judgment is for the year with the daily necessity to pray three times a day in order to be able to actually get the stuff which, uh, which is there. Yes, Al. Are we to unmute you? I can unmute you. You're, mute, you're muted, Al. There you go. That's right. Uh, that works fine for positive graduated quantities like unaccountable money. What about uh, if you were if you were included in the Miva Maya, if your end was ordained for this year? 
So what is your fellow going to accomplish? Um, so um, so it, it could be, um, again, depending on how uh, Hasidic you are or not, or how Kabbalistic you are or, or not. So sometimes you could go ahead and they tell stories, um, probably from every different group, uh, you know, across the, uh, the spectrum of orthodoxy, of some guttle who went ahead and uncharacteristically uh, humiliated somebody or embarrassed somebody. And everybody was shocked at why are they, uh, you know, go, why are they going ballistic on this person, embarrassing that uh, person, uh, you know, in public like that. Whatever they happen to do, it's uncharacteristic. It seems to be in violation of uh, of things which are going on. They're yelling and screaming at somebody, and then when they uh, when the person leaves, and then they ask the guttle afterwards, "What were you doing? What just happened over there?" He says, "What do you mean? Did you see?" He said, "See what?" He said, "You didn't see." He said, "See what?" He said, "The Malchamavus was with this person." And if I hadn't humiliated them, the Malchamavis would have killed them. But since Chazal say that humiliation is akin to death, so by humiliating them, I was able to save them from actually physically dying. You know, so something along those lines. So sometimes what can happen is, that's why there's the, you know, one of the explanations which, uh, which, uh, which is given as to why we celebrate Sukkot in the fall rather than in the springtime, which is when historically, when we actually left Mitzrayim and first started living in, in Sukkahs. So one of the explanations which they give is that over the course of Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, so somebody may have received a judgment for exile. That may have been what the Basin decided for this person, that he should be subject to exile. So exile could literally mean you're thrown out of house and home and out of your country and you're wandering, uh, you know, with no place to go. But a fulfillment of that could be the fact that we leave our house on Sukkot and we go ahead and we dwell in the Sukkah. And that could be a fulfillment of the, of the decree, of the judgment that we should be exiled. So this becomes a, a, a manifestation of that in a much smaller scale but it still checks off the box saying, well, the guy was in exile. So that already takes care of the exile, which he needs. And now he's good to go. So it could be that's what, like, uh, like uh, when, they, when uh, they were told, when Moshe Avinu was told that the people who were out for him uh, are no longer alive, Dustin and Avira are no longer alive, they actually were alive. So how could Moshe Rabbeinu be told that Dustin and Avira are not alive when they were actually alive? They keep showing up, you know, causing trouble uh, throughout our travels. So Rashi there says, quoting from Chazal, that they lost their wealth. And Chazal say that becoming impoverished is akin to dying. And therefore, that becomes the fulfillment of that the decree. So there may be ways that we could sort of borrow uh, decrees and variations of that and things which are similar to that as a way of avoiding the you know, death in the classical sense. Really so that may be a way to, uh, to get around that. It really waters it down. The tefillah. You, know, you, you, you mean by water literally, or you're? Well, you know, yeah. no, I mean, but it's just, very good. I just mean like you know when you go into the sound of talk, if it's you know, you know, the, the, it's, it's the, dramatic. The yeah, this, this take a little of the dra- the drama out of it. Correct. The drama is is very strong, but taking this approach really doesn't it takes away from it you know well i mean this approach still says that the, the decree will be could be for death yeah you just I, may be able yeah. to go ahead and, and undo that there may be ways to undo that but it's still it there there's still is something which is severe in terms of deserving of death right. if you don't if you don't make that change that adjustment then it actually will be death 
Okay. Now the second approach uh, 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 looks at it a, a little bit differently. The second approach says no. Because Baruch Hu said that now let, let's change the muscle in this for this approach. We're going to change it from uh, money, and we're going to say uh, that it's going to be let's say uh, precipitation. One of our main theme in the in Jewish calendar in Jewish thought has to do with rain and the rain falling in order to provide for the agricultural society. <coughs> Which they which they had back then. So on Rosh Hashanah, Kadosh Baruch Hu decides that uh, in uh, Bergen uh, County there's going to be 50 inches of precipitation for Tufshin Pei Aleph. Now, yeah, it just it just happened. So now, what happens when there's going to be? I don't know what I say. 50 inches. There's going to be 50 inches of precipitation. So 50 inches of precipitation in and of itself is neither good nor bad, because it depends on when it falls. If it falls in a way which is destructive, let's say in the wintertime, you get 24 inches of snow uh, overnight, and that causes a lot of havoc, and it makes kids stay home from school, and parents having to stay home from school, and nobody could go to work. So that could be something which is very bad. But in the event that that same uh, number of inches of rainfall falls during the farming season, then it would be very productive. So all that's decided on Rosh Hashanah is the general number of what's going to happen. Now, how exactly, now let, let's say the, the decree, we could use the example of money. <clears throat> let's say the decree is, is that on the 20th of Shvat, you're gonna have $1,000 in your pocket, $1,000 cash in your pocket. So superficially you say, okay, having $1,000 in my pocket, that would be a great thing to have that, uh, that money there. But that same $1,000 in your pocket could actually be a bad thing. Because if you just made a withdrawal, let's say to pay your mortgage, you're going to go to the currency exchange to pay your mortgage and you get mugged on your way to the currency exchange. So now the thousand dollars which you're going to use to pay your, your mortgage, it was in your pocket, but now it was stolen from you. So as a result of it being there, that caused it to be stolen. Now you're a thousand dollars behind rather than a thousand dollars ahead. So in that regard, it could end up being, it could end up manifesting itself in a way which is really a klala, which is really a curse rather than a bracha. And that's why, if you note, one of the, uh, the, uh, the, the things which we say, uh, when we daven for Geshem, for example, if you remember the, the Nusach over there, one of the things that we emphasize is lebracha v'lola Just rain by itself is, 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 in and of itself is neither bracha nor klala. It's neither a blessing or a curse. So we have to ask Hashem, number one, we want rain. And number two, the rain which we want Please make sure that it's for bracha, it's beneficial for us, and not going to be something which is going to be harmful, which can be leklala in the event that overnight, let's say rather than 24 inches of snow, you get 24 inches of rain, that's going to be terrible. That could destroy a community that much rain, uh, which is falling overnight. And therefore, that's the balance that we have between the judgment on Rosh Hashanah versus the prayer which we, uh, which we offer to Hashem on a daily basis. So Rosh Hashanah is the determination of uh, the allocation of, of, of assets, the allocation of stuff, but the allocation of stuff in and of itself is neither good nor bad. What's going to decide whether that allocation is going to be productive and for bracha, or whether it's going to be for a curse and non-productive and counterproductive, so that is going to be decided based on the way we daven on a daily basis. And that's going to be, according to this approach, that's the way we go ahead and we, we balance between the davening, which we do on Rosh Hashanah, 
versus the davening which we do on a, 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 on a daily basis. And then also, I happen to have this sitter here with me, uh, every uh, every month, every Shabbos, I think this week is Shabbos Mavorchim. So when we uh, when we say the prayer for Shabbos Mavorchim, so this also is emphasized over there. Um, I can't show it to you because I'm missing these pages. But <laughs> but I think in the in the prayer which we say uh, for. I don't think I have any regular uh, okay, yeah. If you get a rabbi study, you'd be able to find a sitter, but alas, that never the case. Be'ito. Be'ito, right? Also be'ito, right? Very good. So Birchas HaChodesh, we say, Sheyimale Hashem Mishalos Libenu, that Hashem should grant us the requests of our heart, Litova. So we add the word Litova because Baruch Hu could go ahead and he could grant our wish and he'll give us what we want, but that's not necessarily something which is going to be in our best interest. Right? How many stories do we hear about people who win the, uh, you know, the Mega Millions lottery and after uh, winning the Mega Millions lottery, their life falls apart, their family falls apart, their life falls apart, uh, they're uh, you know, homeless within a couple of years. How they uh, blew through all of that money is, is a mystery to all of us, but somehow they managed to do so. And it's not just uh, a one-time event that's, uh, that happens to somebody, but it's something which is, uh, as far as I understand, is not infrequent. And that's the idea that just because the Kodesh Baruch Hu gives us something, and just because he gives us the thing that we ask for, doesn't mean that it's Latova. It doesn't mean that it's for blessing. And therefore, that's going to be the prayer which we say on a daily basis, three times a day, is asking that the, what was allotted to us back on Rosh Hashanah, Aser Sumei Tshuva, and Yom Kippur, so that should be for Labracha and Latova, it should be for blessing and for goodness, and not in any way uh, going to, uh, to harm our, our, our interest. And that is the Baruch of is later on. It says the Chaim Ulashalom. So some versions have the Chaim Tovim Ulashalom. Chaim Tovim Ulashalom. Then right away we emphasize the uh, the good. Very good. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So with that, we are finished with uh, what I have on the uh, the fifth principle. And as I said last week, this concludes the first of the three sections of the thirteen principles. So now the next four principles which we have are all going to revolve around the authenticity of prophecy, the authenticity of Torah, the fact that Torah never changes, and our general perception towards this, the part of the uh, religion where God, the, the supreme being, shares with us his expectations, what we should do and what we should not do, and how we know that the, uh, the expectations which there are are, uh, are, uh, are are authentic. So we'll begin that in Mitzvah Hashem next week. Thank you, right. Rabbi. Okay, all the best, everybody. Stay healthy, stay safe. Don't forget it is